Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and today we're going to be talking dad jokes. Now, Robert, how did we end up here? So, I was just thinking about it over the weekend, basically. I was... um, I, I, you know, dad jokes are, uh, I think, a familiar concept for most of us. Um, I don't remember it being a named thing when I was growing up, but at some point in my pre-parenthood life, it became a thing, and even non-dads would get called out for dad jokes at times. And uh, now, as a as a parent, it's it's like a frequent call out. Uh, you know, not only in this house, but but I, I hear it with uh, with my friends who are who are parents, uh, and also among again friends who are not parents. Uh, it's often a critique of someone else's joke, often from a child um, or from a spouse. Uh, but sometimes it's a self commentary on one's own joke. And uh, I, I guess I hadn't thought too much about it. I didn't like. I wasn't too self-reflective on the concept until until very recently. Uh, my my son is is eight, going on nine, and he's definitely at the point where he is capable of sarcastic laughter for particularly punny jokes, particular you know any kind of like uh, perhaps too lame um, of an attempted humor. Mm-hmm. He is uh, liable to respond with sarcasm, and while he won't say, "Oh, that's a dad joke," uh, like clearly we are in dad joke territory. And so I just started pondering, like, what does this mean? What is the dad joke? Is the dad joke a thing? Uh, And if it is, like, how might we um, quantify it? And what does it reveal about things like childhood development or humor itself? So in your experience, what is the age where where the child stops rewarding you for criminally weak puns and, and starts punishing you for them? Um, I guess we're kind of in that territory right now. Like it's not, I, I still get, get lots of laughs. I, I'm still pretty mm-hmm. good. I, I know my audience pretty well, but I'm, I'm rolling out more and more jokes that, that he is, is liable to either half laugh at or enjoy the awfulness of the pun. Uh, <laughs> and part of that, I guess, is him picking up on my delivery as well. Like if I know that it's a particularly lame joke, I'm, probably going to lean into that delivery you know yeah well i mean it was definitely a thing you'd see with like dads on tv the when when you were a kid that like that yes they embarrass their teenage or adolescent kids by telling grown worthy jokes and then get punished with the dad (laughs) yeah um you know this actually came up in one of the sources i ended up looking at uh, for this because because after i was thinking about it I, i was like surely i'm not the only one contemplating this, and I'm certainly not. Uh, but I looked at this one article, uh, 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 this one post titled, Please Stop Calling My Humor Dad Jokes by Andrew uh, Bujan. Uh, this was from 2019, published in The Washingtonian. And um, they basically made two ju- two points. And, and I have to stress that this wasn't like a super serious article. Uh, like he was, the, the author is very much engaging in you know, the humorous nature and the low stakes aspect of the topic. But they did bring up the idea of ageism and dad jokes, uh, but also the idea that they tend to depend, uh, some interpretations of them tend to depend on outdated gender roles in the household, in which the mom handles all the whole hard work around the house, and dad just kind of wanders into the room from time to time to score an easy laugh with the kids. And I feel like that's the kind of thing reflected in this sitcom model that you, uh, you're discussing here. Right. 
with a lot of American sitcoms, like it, it fell upon the the mom character to be the responsible one in the family, and the dad got to be the goofball, you know, the Homer Simpson. Right, right. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, not to say there wasn't truth to the trope, but it's probably a situation, too, where having this trope so uh, readily occur in our sitcom culture, it kind of, um, you know, echoes back on us. You know, uh, it reverberates back on the culture itself, and we lean into it even more, you know? Okay, so I assume at this point most people are familiar with what a dad joke is. But then again, I don't know. I, I often feel disconnected from terms that people use in this Internet age, especially yeah. uh, since I'm like trying not to look at the social medias and all that. Uh, so like for people who are not so familiar, what makes a dad joke a dad joke in the parlance of our times? All right. In the parlance of our times, dude, they are um, they're, they're jokes that are a bit on the lame side uh, in some estimates. They're often punny in, in that they use puns and they're generally family friendly. Uh, and the punchline, I, I was trying to figure out how to, to best phrase. It. I feel like the punchline hits like a crashing clown car and your intended audience, uh, like the ideal audience that is actually going to laugh at this joke is five to seven year olds, you know, thereabouts. Mm-hmm. Um but that is, and this is key, regardless of the current age, ages of those present. So you might be in the, um, you might be in the room with, say, a forty-something and a teenager, but you're still firing out jokes like you have a whole room full of five to seven-year-olds. Now, you mentioned that these jokes are often puns and that they're often family-friendly. Of course, dad jokes do tend toward very much like. Uh, simple wordplay and cl- what might be called clean comedy. But another tendency I've noticed in dad jokes is, uh, I don't even know what you'd call this, the, the tendency to make a joke that is uh, that is edgy to a really tame extent. And so this might involve, say, references to people's butts or uh, extremely <laughs> minor crude language. So one yep. example cited in a New York Times article that we're about to talk about, uh, the author mentions the joke, what has two butts and kills people, an assassin... Ah, okay, yeah, that that is a little edgy for the for the young crowd, but yeah, but I, I mean, not I too like edgy to me. That's very much in the in what is understood to be the dad joke zone because mm-hmm. it is a joke that simultaneously violates some kind of taboo with the use of the word ass, but it is an extremely minor taboo. Yeah, I mean, for instance, Bart Simpson would love that joke. Uh, uh, so it's it is it is aimed appropriately, and yeah, there there is this tendency. Uh, oftentimes for the jokes to take on this this child's uh, scatological um, zone, you know. That, so it's going to involve butts and maybe it's going to involve poop. There'll be more of a tendency for poop jokes because this is something that uh, the young folks uh, enjoy. We can, we can, again, think of it as kind of the, the rude Bart Simpson territory of, of, of joke craft. Yeah, and, and lots, of, lots of dad jokes are completely clean, but they've got a special purchase on this place that we might call the edgy side of tame. Yeah, yeah. Now, um, one, one other thing I want to touch on here is that um, obviously the terminology we're using here is, 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 is largely gendered. Uh, but I, I think I tend to reject the idea that it's distinctly gendered phenomena we were talking about. Um, you know, it doesn't seem to be especially tied to masculine ideas. And I'm, I'm willing to bet anything that there are parents of all identities out there that make what can be classified as dad jokes. Oh, of course. Yeah, obviously, this is something that transcends daddom. I do think there must be some kind of observation of at least a slight trend toward these kinds of jokes among dads mm-hmm. in particular. But yeah, all kinds of people tell dad jokes. In fact, 
the first dad joke that came to my mind um, when when I was thinking about this, when you said you wanted to do this topic was uh, it's it's now a legend in my in-laws family, but it wasn't a joke told by a dad, but a joke told to a dad. And it was, uh, <laughs> in fact, told to a dad by a daughter. It was something Rachel said to her dad when they were posing for a family photo and they were trying to get everybody to smile. And she told the joke. You've probably heard this one before, but I'll see. Yeah, where did George Washington keep his armies? Uh, I don't know. Where did George Washington keep his armies? In his sleeves. His like his arms. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Sleeves, yeah. Yes. Yeah. And uh, the legend goes that, that uh, my father-in-law like just laughed so hard at this that his head nearly exploded. <laughs> yeah. The, I mean, there's something about a, a pun like that, um, which is hard. It's hard to classify. Like, was that a really good pun or a really bad one? Uh, you know, because you kind of you can kind of trip over it trying to figure out what the connection is. Like you're trying to like you're visualizing it. Uh, you're you're thinking about history, and it has nothing to do with any of those. It's just no. a you know the, these the association between various words. It, it is just uh, making a silly sound at the end of a word. Yes, that yeah. is the connection. <laughs> so you kind of feel tricked by it. Uh, but you have to admire the uh, ingenuity of the trap as well. Like, you know, it's I can laugh all day at this bear trap, but my leg's stuck in it, so I guess it's pretty good. So I would not be surprised if research were to find – I do not think such research exists. So I would not be surprised to find that dads are especially prone to telling dad jokes, but it is undeniable that dad jokes transcend the dad category. Everybody tells dad jokes. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah. Parents, non-parents, people of all ages, people of all genders. Um, But this seems to be a way that we are, as a culture, classifying them today. So, uh, again, I was thinking about this over the weekend, trying to figure out, like, what what it meant. And uh, my main observation has to do with identity, importance, and enthusiasm uh, of the audience. So, Becoming a parent, in my opinion, is is pretty much the best, worst thing you can do. It's it's not for everyone and for many great reasons, uh, but I can say from experience that it will, at the very least, totally change the shape of whatever your life was prior to the uh, arrival of tiny humans or a tiny human in your life. Nothing uh, will be the same again, including your humor. And a lot of this just has to do with like very basic realities about there being a growing human in your house. So the larval human develops, it grows, it learns, it develops language and thinking skills. And so, of course, it picks up on humor. It begins experimenting with its own humor. It's, uh, this is a, a, a process that is at times delightful, at times arduous, uh, but there's a lot of laughter and you help to cultivate it. And uh, by the way, speaking of, of when the sort of loose time frame from this, though it varies a, a, a bit, is babies typically start laughing between two and four months. Now, I was thinking about this because there are obviously several different ways that having a child in the household will change the, the household's humor profile. Because on one hand, uh, babies and young children are often humorous, like they can be yeah. the, re- the thing that is funny. Then at a certain point, you might say at like two to four months, uh, they start becoming the audience for humor. They think things are funny. But then also uh, they change essentially what people are thinking about in the household. And most humor is based on whatever's on your mind at the time. So they will also become, even if it's not like referring to something they just did or reacting to something they just did, baby and child humor will sort of occupy the mind and become the subject of a lot of humor. 
Yeah, yeah. There's 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 a lot that ends up going on there, you know. And you know, it's like they say, um, you know, little little pitchers have big ears. They they pick up on so much, and they end up, uh, you know, mimicking and trying to understand the humor that you're using. Uh, for instance, when you're you're talking to a non-child, um, so it's it's really in, in half the time you're not even really aware of what's going on, but you're kind of uh, all in this uh, this this complex learning process together. Um, but yeah, it, it does. I feel like it does definitely change the way you um, you calibrate your jokes. Because uh, to, for me, example, uh, an example, um, I, I like to think that I'm a reasonably funny person, and uh, I enjoy it when I can genuinely make a person laugh. Though, like all of us, I'll also settle for some polite laughter uh, from <laughs> some, from someone else. Uh, I feel like I probably had a pretty good success rate with my humor uh, prior to my son coming into my life, but. With with him, once he reached the point where he was, because obviously a three, you know, a super young child is not really going to be able to understand jokes. You could go up to a baby in a stroller on the street. You could tell it a joke and maybe you'll get a, a, a laugh out of them if you're making a goofy enough face. But they're not really going to pick up on the nuances of your punchline. Right. If you want to make that that like two to four month old baby laugh, you're in, you're more in the prop comedy realm at that point. Yeah. Yeah. You're in the peekaboo stage. <laughs> so I get, that's another thing to get to keep in mind. It's like the, 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 the barrier to humor starts, uh, you know, in, in a weird place, in a very low place. And then you work up from there. But but I would say that if, from the point on at which I could actually make my my son laugh, I suddenly had just an insanely good success rate with this audience of one um, generating laughter with almost every joke was just guaranteed. And the, the the big kicker was it was authentic laughter every time because he's for the longest he simply wasn't capable of faking laughter like it was you knew that if he was laughing at a joke he genuinely found it funny or or certainly that is that was the impression right L- very young children are not uh, they haven't learned politesse yet right um but one of the reasons I was reflecting on this is because I've now reached the point where the boy is perfectly capable of doing a sarcastic ha-ha at my lamer jokes. Um, but I would say that period from five to seven years of age, uh, even on up into year eight here, this was probably the most fruitful comedic period of my life. And and here's the kicker. I'll never have this rate of success again. I'll never make another human being laugh this much and laugh this consistently at my humor. Well, in a way, like having spent that long trying to uh, get laughs out of a young child, you've sort of, to some degree, I mean, I'm not saying you can never change, Robert, but a person at this point has cemented a large part of their adult brain in that mindset. Right, right. And yeah, and uh, neurologically, there are reasons you can't go back. But also, it's just like, I've, if, if I've been going for that low-hanging fruit dad joke for so long, and I've had a, such a great success rate with it, why would I ever give it up? You know, it's like if you're a bear, and you found an incredible food cache in a Prius once, and now you're just <laughs> going to forever target Priuses, even though most Priuses that you break into are not going to be filled with groceries, you, you still broke into a Prius once that had plenty of groceries, and you're never going to forget that. Uh, so right. even when the sarcastic ha-has come with more, um, uh, you know, come more often, uh, I'm, I'm probably still going to make the same jokes. And this seems to be a, a big part of what's going on with dad jokes. Like you go through that that period of success, and then you change. Like you just got such positive rewards from this style of humor, you don't evolve beyond it. 
Yeah, the the young child is a kind of a Skinner box, and you're the rat inside it, and it's repeatedly rewarding you for years on end for for doing the the low hanging fruit joke, and then when that doesn't work quite so well anymore, like uh, at that point, can you really stop? I mean, you are conditioned. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, uh, thinking about the the sarcasm aspect of this, I I looked. Um, I looked into this a little bit, and uh, I, uh, in the literature, the, the idea seems to be that children begin to develop the ability to comprehend ironic utterances around five to six years of age. So it's a relatively late developing skill, though this, this varies uh, a, a fair amount uh, as far as individual kids go. And I was reading uh, this paper from, this is from 1990 by Capelli et al., titled How Children Understand Sarcasm. And this is pretty interesting. They, they point out that for an adult to catch sarcasm, they depend on two different cues. There's context, and then there's the speaker's uh, intonation. So, you know, I'm, I think we can all imagine, like, the, the context situation where I could say something that is meant to be picked up as uh, ironic, but I could do so in a very flat, believable tone, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and if you, you were able to compare what I'm saying with the situation and, and or you know me, you, can, you know what I'm, I'm getting at. Um, but the study found that the children initially depend more heavily on intonation uh, than on context and recognizing sarcasm. So that uh, sarcastic uh, voice that you use uh, that's key for these younger children uh, to being able to, to pick up on it. And I, I feel like I found this in my own life. If I'm going too dry with my humor, uh, it'll often like steamroll right past the boy. Uh, but if I'm making the sarcastic voice, he's, he, he'll get it. And if he's being sarcastic, oh boy, he will totally lean into a sarcastic voice. And I feel like I've encountered that with other kids as well. Like they will really, they really lay it on thick. Well, I think this ties into the way that irony and sarcasm so often fail in writing, uh, in written media, you know, that, well, I don't know, I guess it depends on what you call fail, but like they, sometimes people fail to detect irony and sarcasm in written media. Uh, And this is one of the reasons that I was actually just reading about this a while ago, thinking that it might be worth doing an episode on the idea of uh, ironic punctuation. You know, in in some writing conventions, there's a way of marking a sentence to say, like, I don't really mean what I'm saying in this sentence. I'm saying it for humorous effect with like a special, you know, a special like upside down exclamation point or something like that at the beginning of the sentence. And it's weird because I was thinking about that and I was thinking, well, on one hand, that would help clear up a lot of confusion because it just seems inevitable, especially if you're writing for an audience of multiple people that you will at some point make a joke uh, saying something that's the opposite of what you really think in writing and people, while they might get it, if you said it out loud, will, will not understand you in writing. And they'll be like, how could you say that? I don't understand, you know, why? And so uh, irony punctuation would help clear that up. But I think it would also make those statements less funny. Like if you mark them, them as a joke mm-hmm. at the beginning of the sentence, then is the is it actually worth making the joke? Like, will most of the audience who would normally laugh at it actually find it funny? I'm, I'm not sure. Yeah, it's kind of like announcing, I shall now make a pun uh, before proceeding. Um, but then again, yeah, I mean, I just, some languages use this. So, it, uh, you know, if it is used, it must work to some extent. I, c- I can't judge it too much. Well, writers, remember what you're supposed to do if you have a character in the third person, and they're being sarcastic, you're supposed to say, um, he said sarcastically, and then the reader will know that this character is being sarcastic. Or she said, ironically. (laughs) (laughs) That's just good writing.
I'm being sarcastic. Um, let's see. Um, <laughs> well, it brings me back to this paper you mentioned uh, from 1990. Was that the year? I think it was. If this yes. is correct, mm-hmm. there are two major cues that people use to detect irony or sarcasm in a statement. One is context and the other is intonation. If you're in a written context, you can't use intonation unless you have some kind of special punctuation or something like that to, to give a, you know, a visual version of intonation. So you're down to only context. You're basically you're losing half of your toolkit for detection. Yeah. And then, of course, in the written form, context can vanish as well. Uh, so it, uh, I can see where one might lean on having some sort of uh, strange punctuation choice that would like forever brand it as ironic or sarcastic. Yeah, it might be a good idea. Yeah. Uh, whoever whoever is in charge of English, you know, get on that. <laughs> yes, present this to the board of, of English. So, uh, like I say, I was thinking about this, and then I, I, I looked around to see who else had, had written about it. And um, I, I found an excellent article from just back in 2019 uh, in the New York Times titled, A Dad Defends Dad Jokes by author and critic uh, Jason Zinnemann. And th- this seemed like a decent person to lean on because I looked, I looked them up. They're about my age. Uh, they've written a book on horror films called Shock Value. So I figured, you know, this might be my people. And, uh, and yeah, ultimately I found that a lot of what he broke down was kind of like what I was I was thinking about, you know, with some additional layers uh, as well. Uh, so I want to just roll through some of, of his key observations from this article. So he observed that, quote, procreating turns men into miserable comics. Uh, I think he's, you know, he's, he's joking a bit there. Um, though I, I think we also have to stress that a lot of parents were probably not particularly funny to begin with. Uh, so <laughs> it's it's not necessarily a situation where something great is lost. Um, he points to a dad joke only because this is this is interesting because I didn't really have a good idea of what the time frame was. I figured I didn't hear about it when I was growing up, uh, but I didn't know exactly how old it was. Uh, he he points out that this term only really comes into usage over the past decade and then becomes ubiquitous online in very recent years. He writes, quote, I'm a comedy critic, so being a dad can seem like an occupational hazard. It may be professional suicide to admit, but since having children, I often find myself making lame puns as well as poop jokes. So it, this is where he brings uh, up the poop jokes. And um, I was thinking about myself. I probably make more poop jokes now than previously because, again, this is the material that really zings with kids. Now, what? Uh, show me the anatomy of a poop joke. Is is it just uh, invoking the concept of poop? But does it need to be poop uh, referred to uh, like out of its regular context? Uh, what makes a good a crackling poop joke? Well, most poop jokes are not good. Uh, I find that it has to be this perfect crossover, like a poop joke that you are not too ashamed of yourself. And that the child will laugh out. Uh, the child will laugh at anything f- up to a certain point just because it has the word poop in it. Like poop mm-hmm. is inherently funny, um, uh, probably in general, but especially to the children. Uh, so for, for my point, it's like, it, can it, is, it an, is it an eloquent enough poop joke that you feel okay telling it and being the teller of this joke? You know, I was asking because I was just thinking about a rather poopy concept to perhaps cover on the show in the near future. And it was uh, it was the discovery of an ancient manuscript of a commentary on Homer that had clearly been used as toilet paper in the ancient world. And it was found at, a, <laughs> at an ancient garbage dump in Egypt, but it had poop on it. And I don't know. Yeah. 
Well, I mean, maybe so. We did the episode on the Fardonomicon, so I, I don't think anything is sacred anymore. Uh, <laughs> but maybe, see, that's not a joke. That's just like, well, here's an ancient document that was pooped on. So I don't know if that would fly yes. with kids. Or maybe it would. Would you say, here's, a, here's an ancient document and somebody wiped their butt with it? Would that be funny enough? Mm, I mean, at a certain age, probably, yeah. But then again, are the kids going to pick up on the weight of, uh, if you're talking about like the works of Homer and stuff? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I'm not sure. Uh, that's a whole, probably a whole domain of, um, of humor theory just regarding poop jokes. Now, I did think that the author here, Zuneman, really nailed it with this line. Uh, he says, quote, like so many lazy comics, uh, we parents pander. If jokes work, then they stay set. Gradually, we become hooked on cheap laughs. Some of us, some of us even delude ourselves into thinking we are actually funny. And he points out that once this setting is obtained, it does not evolve but the children, of course, do evolve. And uh, yeah, this totally rings true with what I'm beginning to experience now. Like, uh, and, and it goes beyond joke telling because I think of all the various references that my wife and I make in, uh, you know, regarding things that my son once said or once observed or once did. Um, and they're almost all things that he does not say anymore or does not do anymore. In many cases, does not remember. So he can't even pick up on the reference, uh, you know, except he's heard us talk about it. Uh, but they were like, they were so near and dear to our hearts. Um, and sometimes they sum up an idea really well, at least for us. Uh, and I imagine I'm going to probably keep making these references for the rest of my life. Like, uh, for example, he used to say things like, so is me instead of um, so am I, you know, which is it's kids. There's a lot of stuff with kids like that. Right. They they say something wrong and it's adorable. It's funny, as, at least as long as you're connected to them. Mm-hmm. Um, or uh, another example was he used to talk about um, uh, if he was describing the temperature, he might say it was super a little bit hot or <laughs> if it was uh, dark outside, it was super a little bit dark. Uh, or he would overuse and misuse the word crazed. And so th- these are just a few examples uh-huh. of things that I can't let go. And I'm probably going to keep referencing them, even though they have no connection even to who he is right now, much less who he will become. Oh, I love super a little bit hot. That's like uh, when when a kid at any point saying they're hungry, they're saying I'm a little bit starving. Yeah, yeah, that sort of thing. Like that's that's the very sort of thing that a kid would say. And and you would end up latching onto it. Um so, uh, yeah, I feel like uh, Zinnemann to- totally gets it right there. But it sounds like uh, Zinnemann is saying, and to some extent you're also saying, the issue is that like the child gets older and their sense of humor evolves, but the, the parent is inherently kind of stuck in this older mode of what has worked before. And, and this mirrors other things that happen, of course, in like parent-child relationships. Like, you know, I know a lot of tension as kids get into like adolescent and teenage years is like parents exercising a level of sort of uh, management and protectiveness that would have been more appropriate to a child at a younger age or so the teenager thinks. And, you know, mm-hmm. the teenager thinks like, that. you know, you are still treating me as if I'm younger and I don't and I rebel against that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think absolutely. Um, there's also, and Zinnemann gets into this a bit too, there's, there's, there's certainly – uh, he, he discusses the mockery, the mockery thing, um, the idea that um, uh, that we that dads then continue to use dad jokes as a way to kind of um, 
you know, uh, get a rise out of the child, and then the child kind of mocks them for using that humor. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he also gets into this uh, idea that um, that it's all, a lot of it's tied up with, with nostalgia. So first of all, there's of course the nostalgia for when your child was younger and they laughed at everything you said, uh, and right. you were the funniest person on earth. But also. Um, he says that it, that basically dad jokes give us permission to joke like children again, uh, you know, to, to give us permission to make these kind of, you know, lame, short, you know, not too, you know, not too deep jokes that are that are you know, usually pretty tame. Um, and it's I, I feel like it's part of that larger trend in the way that parenthood gives one permission to a point to think and dream like a child again, because you dream with them. You introduce them to the stuff that filled your childhood engage and, and you yourself get to engage with all of it again. Um, like, I mean, example for that with, with that for me would be like star Wars. I introduced my son to star Wars. He got super into it. And I would say I probably got more into it than I had ever been in my life. Like even more than I was when I was a kid, because I am experiencing it through him now. Uh, I witnessed this just through you. Like you, you went through a Star Wars renaissance in the past yeah. couple of years. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and um, and I, it's it, it, I don't think it would have taken place without him. I mean, maybe it would have. You know, people still go on these various nostalgia cycles, and um, and I certainly do that with things that have no connection to my son. Um, but uh, but but uh, but I, I I can definitely see how how parenthood plays into it. So uh, so yeah, nostalgia seems to be a big uh, point. Uh, and then he also points out the puns. Uh, one thing about puns though is that puns are in and of themselves pretty great. You don't have to be a parent or a dad or what have you to really enjoy puns. Uh, Shakespeare made use of, of puns, and I, I can think of plenty of um, of, of uh, adults, parents and non-parents alike, who go crazy for a good pun. I feel like the adult pun market, though, tends to skew more towards uh, rewarding puns that violate some taboo beyond just the standard understood definition or use of a word. Like mm-hmm. a lot of adult puns are also sort of vulgar or edgy in some way. Yeah. And certainly uh, true of a lot of Shakespeare puns. Yeah. Yeah. In a way though, I think that's one of the things that makes things like, um, where did Washington keep his, uh, his his armies Mm -hmm. like one of the reasons that works so well and it sticks with me so well is because most uh comedy aimed at adults by adults uh isn't you know it's going to go for those those cheaper laughs and those edgier laughs and so your your defenses are down for these sort of weapons it's kind of like in um in frank herbert's dune where they have the the self-protective shields and you can't fire a bullet through it and you can't like quickly stab through it you have to go slow Mm -hmm. it's like that's kind of how the um oh yes the, the, the tame humor can be it's like i had my defenses were not designed for a blade this slow and now you have stabbed me in the heart the dad joke is, in a way, the weirding module. Yeah. <laughs> it trains you on the slow knife combat of, of pun humor. Yeah. <laughs> um, now, a- another thing that the Xenoman got into that I thought was interesting was touching on when you get into this area where a dad or you know, a parent is making this dad joke, this, this kind of lame joke that then elects sighs and groans from ev- everyone in the room, you're also getting into the area of, of cringe comedy here. Um, which which I think is a, is a good point. Like we don't necessarily think of, say, The Office as being dad jokes and dad humor, but there was a lot of that there. I mean, the the character of Michael Scott, for example, engaged in a lot of this, making like really bad uh, jokes, really lame attempts at humor, and um, and it was hilarious. We loved it. 
Well, yeah, that kind of cringe comedy, like the comedy that's based in witnessing something, somebody do something incredibly embarrassing and like just fail in front of an audience. <laughs> it's yeah. a weird kind of uh, mixture of humor, and it's something that feels like it's simultaneously relatively wholesome and doesn't have to get into you know like like raunchy content but at the same time feels absolutely as dangerous as like the most raunchy blue comedy uh just because it's so like painful it's like emotionally visceral to watch embarrassment based humor yeah yeah um now, now speaking of stand-up, um, I, uh, when Zinnemann got into this idea as well that you know that the the dad joke is generally not only tame, it's also very lean. You know, it's it's it doesn't take much time to tell. It's not complicated. This reminded me uh, a lot of the stand-up comedy of uh, the late Mitch Hedberg, but also some of the I guess a lot of the comedy of Stephen Wright. Uh, not to say that those uh, those two engaged in and really straightforward dad jokes, but a lot of it was very short. Um, a lot of it was ultimately very clean, uh, very silly, uh, you know, in, in, a, in, in their, their own way. I mean, Wright is, was certainly very dry. Uh, but whereas like, like Hedberg, I feel like he, he was an interesting case because he kind of got away with it because he had this cool stoner persona. Mm -hmm. and, but he's essentially, in many cases, just doing like kind of dad jokes. And I guess, you know, sometimes it's a little loonier than that. And Stephen Wright has this very extremely dry delivery and it's based, uh, uh, you know, in, in sort of a weirdness. Um, but mm -hmm. you could look at this the dad jokes as being just kind of like the latest, most popular way to categorize a kind of style of joke telling that uh, maybe isn't, um, you know, the, the, the main fashion right now, but has been more fashionable in the in the past and is still utilized well by certain practitioners of comedy. Yeah, the self-contained one liner seems important here, though. I, I wonder if some I mean. I don't know. Maybe I have the wrong sense about this. Uh, so a lot of like Mitch Hedberg type jokes, a lot of them seem to hinge on a kind of absurdity, which I don't know how well it translates to kids or not. I, I think about his joke where he says, um, uh, rice is a great food if you ever want to eat a thousand of something. Is the, <laughs> I find that funny. Is that funny to kids? Maybe. Um, I mean, I don't know about that particular joke, but maybe like kids have kids are great at absurdity like kids are a font of absurdity mm -hmm. um i mean that's one of the reasons they can be they can be so uh, amusing to be around um so uh so it's very possible i mean that one's uh, i mean i'm not even sure if i could put my finger on what it is that's funny about that one <laughs> i guess yeah, it's just um, imagining the possibility of eating a thousand hamburgers or a thousand of anything else yeah, yeah, I, I agree. It's just it's it's absurd. Uh, it turns something every day on its head and makes you and like makes it weird. Uh, so that's I, I feel like a, I will have to try this one uh, on my son later and report back. I'm not going <laughs> to let him watch a whole set of Mitch Hedberg, but maybe I'll bust out a few Mitch Hedberg and a little Stephen Wright and see see how he reacts. See which one he likes better. Okay, well, I thought one way to, to try to bring some structure uh, to this idea would be to think about theories of humor. Now, even this is is still going to be a little bit loose because there's clearly not one agreed upon um, theory that explains the role of humor in biological organisms. Uh, we, we've talked about this in the past, but so there are different attempts that psychologists uh, and cognitive scientists have, have put forward 
in trying to explain why we laugh at things like what's actually happening in the brain. What is humor in a biological sense? And uh, I think the place where most recently we went into depth on this subject was in our two-part series called Flatus Ex Machina, which was about why it's funny when machines fail, where we talked about uh, neural net generated uh, text, which was a lot of fun. We talked about like D&D characters and, and spells and stuff created by uh, neural networks. But then <laughs> yeah. we, we also talked about... Uh, uh, about like scenes where like robots fail in movies, like Ed Two Hundred Nine in RoboCop, which is a, yeah, an all time falling down the stairs. Yeah, yeah. Um, but so in that context, we were trying to figure out, okay, well, well, how does this fit into these mainstream hypotheses about what is going on in the body and the brain and our evolutionary history to generate this concept of of humor? Why are things funny? Why does it feel funny? Why do we laugh and so forth? And so there are a bunch of ideas on this. We're not going to get into uh, all of them, certainly not in depth, but I just wanted to mention a few. One that came up, I think, from a biologist or zoologist that we were reading that time, but it was the idea of laughter as a form of play signaling. And I thought that this idea had some purchase. It was pretty interesting. Mm -hmm. So the idea here would be that laughing is actually a kind of communicative mechanism to distinguish playful aggression from genuine aggression. So if you ever watch dogs fighting, they can be making all kinds of growling sounds and, and knocking each other over and all that. But you can still pretty easily tell fun fighting from real fighting by the dog's posture. Like when a dog uh, is, is having fun, it'll like put its butt up in the air and the front of its body down and wag its tail. And so they can be fighting, but we, you know, we know everybody's having a good time yeah you can definitely tell from their body language when they're they're dead serious and when it's uh it's play yeah and so the idea would be well maybe in in primates like us laughter plays some kind of similar role it is a it's a mechanism like the wagging tail to signal mutual communication between parties that something that's going on that might be interpreted in one way, maybe in a dangerous way, is actually just to be interpreted in a humorous way, in a fun way, that everything's okay. And so it discourages misinterpretation of mock aggression. And I, I can certainly see something to this because it is it is undeniable, like it's this natural thing that happens that when kids like wrestle for fun or they're just playing around, it results in laughter. You know, this makes me think about tone and context with sarcasm again, because there, I've certainly had this experience where I've I've told a, I've made a dry joke that um, that is supposed to be a, a joke, but mm -hmm. I, I did it so dryly that that my son doesn't catch it at first, and then I have mm -hmm. to explain to him, no, 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 I'm not serious. Um, you know, not that he's upset, but he's like, really, that's really going to happen? Like he completely falls for it, and then I feel a little bit bad because. My main job here is not to make jokes. It's to it's to raise a child that knows how the world works or has some you know, reasonable uh, knowledge of how the world works. And so maybe I I wonder. This is just, I have nothing to back this up, but maybe parents end up leaning more on tone. They pick up on on the fact that they they need that tone to understand the joke, and so you just lean into it more and more, and you keep leaning into it uh, until you're just a complete hack. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I didn't think about it like that. But yeah, because tone would be so important in in establishing this kind of relationship with a kid. 
Yeah, like why does why does dad basically put clown makeup on every time he makes a joke? Well, because he feels like he needs to signal that he is not telling you how the world works. He is just trying to to make a joke about the world. Uh, yeah, I, I'm not yeah. going to back that up, but that, I'm just 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 uh, you know uh, brainstorming here. No, I think there's something really to that. We we should keep that in mind. Um, now, on on the other hand, uh, as we talked about the last time this came up in, in that um, machine comedy episode. Uh, there are obviously ways in which all of these major theories don't seem to account for some types of laughter and some types of humor, uh, which makes me think, you know, it, it could very well be that multiple theories of humor could simultaneously be partially correct in explaining different types of laughter. I mean, we can't rule out that laughter could have different biological causes converging on the same external behavior, much in the same way that like multiple extremely different you know, biological causes can result in an elevated heart rate, maybe multiple totally different biological causes uh, that, you know, have different evolutionary pathways of development could eventually converge on the same type of body response, which is the pleasure of humor in the brain and the external behavior of laughing. That That's possible. So maybe each of these explanations has some part of the truth. But the reason you would need to say that is that like some of these explanations don't really seem like they would cover certain types of humor, like especially play signaling. I mean, does how would that really affect something like puns? It seems kind of hard to figure that out. Yeah. Now, another major uh, explanation of what's going on when uh, when people experience the feeling of humor is uh, what's known as benign violation theory. Uh, one study we talked about in the past having to do with this was by Peter A. McGraw and Caleb Warren called Benign Violations, Making Immoral Behavior Funny, published in Psychological Science in 2010. And this study looked at the idea of humor as some kind of violation of norms that is recognized by the person who finds it funny as not actually very harmful. Uh, so the example they used in their study was they uh, they they confronted people with a news story about a church that had raffled off a Hummer SUV as part of a promotion for its members, for the churchgoers. And uh, so the, the, the thinking here is that obviously to some people that's going to be kind of a funny idea, right? Like doing a sort of secular like car giveaway at a church would seem to in some way undermine the sanctity of the church. And they they figured under their theory, well, uh, that maybe churchgoers would find this story less funny because they would see this violation of the sanctity of the church as more actually harmful than non-churchgoers would. And they wouldn't find it as funny if humor is indeed based on the idea of a benign violation. And that is what they claim to find in this study. They, they found that churchgoers and non-churchgoers were both about equally disgusted with the idea of a church giving away a car, but they found that non-churchgoers found the story more humorous than churchgoers did. So I think it was like 92% to 62%. So the idea would be that non-churchgoers saw this as a benign violation. Churchgoers saw it as a real harmful violation. And in that other episode, we, we talked about a bunch of reasons uh, why this might and might not work to explain certain types of humor. Uh, like there are a lot of things that are clearly benign types of violations that just aren't funny. But then again, a lot of the things that are funny are some type of benign violation. You could see easily how you could make them not funny by either making them not a violation at all or by making them such a violation that they actually hurt someone. Yeah, yeah. 
I, I in the past I've definitely seen the benign violation theory being one that uh, that, that feels feels accurate. Like I can I can feel it, it. It feels like that's what's going on in various jokes. But again, I I would be hesitant to to assign all humor to this one theory. Yeah, this seems to me like one that may be sort of grasping in the right direction, but but that might not have the full contours of exactly what makes something funny or not. Because there are, th- I mean, there are plenty of cases where things are clearly, truly harmful and people still find them funny. Uh, like sometimes even yeah. against your better judgment, like you might, something might happen that is clearly harmful in one way or another and you find it funny even though you feel like you shouldn't and you feel bad for finding it funny. Yeah, but uh, but sometimes they are funnier, like knowing that everyone is okay. Like I've seen that that uh, disclaimer placed in front of the, the the sharing of of various like amusing video clips these days, where it'll be stressed. Everybody was fine. Nobody was actually killed or seriously wounded in what you're about to see. Therefore, you have you have license to actually laugh at it. Now, there's another one we talked about just briefly in that other episode uh, that was called the incongruity resolution theory, and. Essentially, that says when there is an, a mismatch between expectation and reality, you expect things to be one way, but then there's something different. Laughter occurs when we realize that this incongruity can be resolved. So that's another way of framing something that is in some ways kind of similar. But uh, there, there's one last one I wanted to talk about that I've been thinking about more and more since we discussed in uh, since we talked about it in, in that Flatus Ex Machina episode. And this is thinking about laughter from an evolutionary perspective. So one of the things that is really notable about laughter is it's not just an external behavior. Laughter is pleasurable. It it feels good. You like specifically seek out stimuli to make yourself laugh just in the same way you would seek out like delicious food. It feels good and you want it to keep happening. Uh, usually pleasure is a biological reward. The brain delivers itself pleasure in response to an activity that provides some kind of direct or indirect benefit to survival or reproduction. And these, of course, you know, in, in the case of direct benefits, you could think about the obvious stuff, you know, food, food tastes good because you need it to give yourself energy and survive, or it can be much more abstract, like, uh, socializing with others can feel really good. And that's pretty clearly explicable in that it's the strengthening of social bonds and, uh, informing, uh, you know, tighter relationships between yourselves and other people, uh, which, which gives you more of a support structure, makes you less vulnerable, or you could think about the sense of accomplishment you get from completing a task. So if laughter is an adaptation that provides not just an external behavior, but an internal pleasure reward, what is it rewarding? And one answer that I, that I came across to this is that what if it's the brain rewarding itself for performing a debugging procedure, basically? Uh, and this was an idea explored in a 2011 book from MIT Press called Inside Jokes by uh, Matthew Hurley, Daniel Dennett, and Reginald Adams Jr., and I, I have not read this book, but I, I've read some summaries of the, the argument they make, and essentially it is that Humor is a pleasurable reward. It's the, you know, the, the reward inside the brain 
that we get when we recognize the inappropriateness of a mental representation. So in this, uh, all jokes basically have some form of setup and punchline. The setup sort of puts you in a state of mind to establish an inappropriate or unrealistic mental representation. And then the punchline kind of suddenly creates that inappropriate or incongruous uh, mental representation. And then what happens immediately after is that you suddenly figure out what's wrong with the representation that's in your brain. So in the armies and sleeves example, uh, you know, it's like you suddenly have that moment where you realize, oh, oh, I see. Uh, yes, uh, armies in this is just referring to arms, and that is not how grammar works. You you don't actually say ease at the end of every noun. <laughs> But then the brain rewards you for going through that process of debugging the problematic representation in your brain by giving you this pleasurable feeling of humor that is in some ways analogous to the pleasure that you would get from eating delicious food or sleeping or something like that. And so this really gets my brain going because I I wonder about this debugging interpretation. Obviously, uh, you know, I, I think this would have its critics as well, like all of these uh, ideas do. But I wonder if you could see evidence for this debugging interpretation in the special kinds of humor that are especially effective with little kids, but start getting groans once the kids get older. Is a young brain in a more frantic debugging phase? Is it, you know, is the young brain more apt to make an inappropriate mental representation? Presentation and then get a lot of pleasure from figuring out, no, that's not how words work or something like that. And uh, is it is it also is the young brain more susceptible to bugs of this kind in the first place? You know, will, will you sort of fall for the setup and punchline? in a way that makes the debugging possible. No, yeah, I could I could see that uh that playing a role here. Yeah, you're you're when the sitcom dad wanders into the room and tells a joke, he's not just trying to get some cheap laughs, he is debugging the children's brains. He is uh he is helping them sort out uh some possible errors in their cognition by basically presenting them with with little um uh, little uh, thought puzzles, little uh, uh, thought experiments that they have to uh, instantly deal with. I mean, this does kind of go along with another aspect of humor, which is that humor often kind of gives you a little bit of a feeling of being smart. Have you ever noticed this? Like when when you laugh at mm. something, you find something very funny in the back of your mind, there's almost kind of a, a little like, yeah, you're pretty smart. You're a genius. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. To, to to get a joke, to laugh at a joke is to sync up with the mind of the comedian that is telling it or um, or, or has written the joke. And uh, yeah, I could see that. Yeah, I, I could see that interpretation uh, for sure. Um, I'm super a little bit smart. Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. Um, yeah. I, I, OK, I, I like this this interpretation. I, yeah, it makes me wonder if this is this is part of it as well. But it also makes me wonder about. Um I guess this came up a little bit earlier, but, you know, can can we understand how dad jokes work by looking at when they really do not work? You know, that period where I guess the Mm -hmm. kid gets to adolescence or whatever age, whatever age it is, where they start to really groan at dad's dad jokes or at anybody's dad jokes and and say, dad, you know, like what exactly has changed that is failing there? And does that tell us about what worked with the jokes originally? Well, I mean, if we were to roughly compare it to, say, a child uh, getting ready to leave the house uh, at a younger age, 
they they need a lot of help mm-hmm. uh, and reminding and uh, you know a lot of nagging to get to get it done. Are your pants on? Uh, are you wearing the right shirt? Is it buttoned up properly? Let me see your hair. Um, and as they get older, they're you know ideally they're they're doing more and more of this themselves, and they might take a front at you uh, interjecting yourself and saying. I think you need to rebutton that shirt, or I'm not sure that that hair looks completely combed, etc. So maybe something similar is going on with the the debugging of their brain with puns and bad jokes. Is that you're saying, uh, "Let me see that brain of yours for a second. I'm not sure I got all the bugs," and they're like, "Dad, I got you. Got all the bugs. There are no bugs left, but maybe there are. You know, that's why you keep at it." You know, I'm thinking about another interpretation of. Uh what could be a possible reason that parents keep telling groan inducing jokes as their kids get older and start being like, Oh, awful mm-hmm. mom, dad, don't talk. You know, that's, that's the worst is that a lot of times what can be frustrating. I think about interacting with somebody who's like a teenager is like sort of low affect in, in many different directions, you know, just kind yeah. of like inability to give much of a response in any direction. And so getting a very, uh, a very clear, gross kind of emotional response in the form of a groan at a really, uh, really painful pun in a way that is a big reaction, right? At a, you know, at a time when maybe a lot of kids are just like not reacting enough. I don't know if that makes any sense. No, it totally does. You know, it, like there's this, uh, you know, I, I don't, I, I only have limited experience with, uh, with like the junior high uh, and teenage uh, set, but, but, you know, from, from interacting with, with a uh, niece and nephew. Uh, yeah. There, at times there can be that feeling of like, all right, they're in their own own little world, you know, maybe they're, uh, uh, you know, completely absorbed by their, their phone and, and what have you. Uh, so maybe you're not going to get a laughter, la- laughter out of them, but if you can get that groan, if you can get their eyes to roll, at least they're listening to you, mm-hmm. you know, at least you've made some connection and it probably ties back into, you can make an easy analogy to stand up comedy, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you, I guess you ideally, if you can't be the comedian who's just getting, uh, you know, an uproar of laughter, at least if you could get the, the opposite, that would be something. If you could get like the Andy Kaufman uh, kind of response, right, where you're just mm-hmm. in, enraging the audience and, you know, and, and you're making them feel something. You, you're still working the comedy, but you're, uh, um, you're going after a, a different emotional response. It comes back to the idea that that perhaps dad jokes are just a one way of thinking about a particular type of humor that that is um, is desirable in and of itself outside of any kind of uh, parental context. And, uh, you know, just as this this, you know, used to be more popular uh, as a mainstream form of comedy, um, you know, it's it's still going to find an audience today, uh, again, in part, perhaps because your, your guard is down to that that slow moving comedic knife. <laughs> I was just trying to look up the uh, the name of the the martial art that you do with the knives in Dune. I don't think it has a name, but they're the Chris knives in Dune. Yeah, to get past the Holtzman shields. Yeah, this is just the way you try and stab somebody with a Holtzman shield. Yeah, uh, but I had forgotten about this detail as well. Apparently, you can't use uh, lace guns or Holtzman shields on Arrakis because the energy field created by them attracts sandworms. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. That, that's that's right. Uh, I still need a, a part of me wants to reread the first book again. Uh, and now I have more time in anticipation of the uh, of the movie when it comes out this fall. 
Uh, so I don't know. I'm trying to decide on that. Or maybe I should read it to the boy. I can't decide. When, I, I, yeah, I, when I is to, the boy old enough for Dune? I don't know. Like there, cause there's a lot of heady stuff in there, but there's also a basic adventure story, you yeah. know, about a, a young person coming up in the world. Um, there is a lot know, of brutal it, violence and treachery. True. But you know, ultimately you find that in every, everything. There's yeah. a lot of, a lot of kids literature that has a lot of betrayal and uh, violence in it. Okay, what we need is like an age chart that maps response to dad jokes with a, uh, with a receptivity to Dune and like where that <laughs> coincides. All right. Uh, but before we close out, I do want to mention one cool dad joke, uh, if that is even a thing. That sounds like an oxymoron, perhaps. Uh, but this was provided by Andrew uh, Bujan in that uh, 2019 article in the uh, Washingtonian. Uh, this is how it goes. When does a bad joke become a dad joke? I, d- I give up. When it's apparent. <laughs> Very nice. All right. We're going to go ahead and close this one out. But obviously, we'd love to hear from everybody out there. What's, what is your experience with the, the so-called dad joke? Um, you know, what's, what's your take on it, your experience uh, with it on the receiving end, uh, on the giving end? Um, we'd love to, we'd love to, for everyone to chime in on this. So, uh, do let us know in the meantime, if you want to check out other episodes of stuff to blow your mind, including those that we referenced earlier about humor and teasing and so forth, you can find them, uh, wherever you get your podcast in the stuff to blow your mind podcast feed. We've got core episodes on science and culture that come out on Tuesdays and Thursdays on uh, Mondays. We have a listener mail on Wednesdays. We usually have an artifact unless it's been preempted by something and on Friday. Fridays, that's when we do Weird House Cinema, uh, where we leave most of the science uh, uh, on the shelf and instead focus on some sort of a weird picture. Uh, and then we have a vault episode on the weekend. That's a rerun. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.